manifest presence of God in such a way that it's like, okay, we know God's up to something, right? We know God wants to deal with us, and we know that the way that God deals with, there we go, the way that God deals with his children are his carefulness, his graciousness, and it's purposeful for our healing. And so today we're going to talk about a sensitive subject. We'll be talking about sex. And I want to first give a disclaimer. We sent out emails and we sent out text messages and we tried to do our best to prepare those who would be coming to join us. That today there's going to be a little bit of sensitive uh, topic, a sensitive topic to us, but uh, of an explicit nature to some degree. Holy explicit, holy explicit. Uh, and, and so before we get in our time, I just want to want again welcome all of our first time guests. Uh, my name is Richard, one of the pastors. Uh, if you don't know who I am, and I count it a privilege today to simply uh, participate in worship with you all. That now we get to stop for a moment, we get to hear from God and his word um, and, heal from, and, and, and heal from it, amen? Uh, so if you would, would you join me? We're gonna be coming from 1 Corinthians chapter six. 1 Corinthians chapter six. And we'll be reading from verses 12 through 20. When you're there, would you all say amen? And the scriptures read as follow. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Don't you know that your bodies are a part of Christ's body? So should I take a part of Christ's body and make it a part of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Don't you know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? For scripture says the two will become one flesh, but anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. And every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom, you, whom you have from God, for you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. And the whole church said, amen. You all may be seated. The first time I was exposed to pornographic videos was at the age of 11. I remember being at a friend's house where we were just simply hanging out and at this particular instance, there was a friend whose parents were away. And it was during that time where a group of us, after playing ball for a number of hours, this particular individual had asked us if we wanted to watch a movie. And unbeknownst to me, the movie that he would put into the VHS cassette tape player was a porn film. And it was at that moment that not fully comprehending or understanding what I had seen, the graphics and the images that I began to digest would begin to shape me for the rest of my life. And there's this reality for you and I that um, I, I wish I could say now 10 plus years down the road of when I came to encounter Jesus that everything that I sensed was broken in that moment was fully repaired, but I can't actually say that. Uh, if you would give me just your permission this morning, I, I want to be real with y'all. I want the church to stop pretending as if the issues in the world as it deals with the, the abuses of sex have not crept their way into the four walls of the church. And far beyond that, we know that the church is not a building, but the church is a people. And so if it's crept into here, it's crept into us. You see, 16 years old was the first time that my father had a conversation with me about sex. Five years removed to my, from my first exposure. 
And the reason why I know that this is a problem because if you read current statistics, you'll find that every single second, 28,258 users are watching porn. That $3,075.64 is spent on porn every second on the internet. One in five mobile searches today are for pornography. 90% of teens and 96 of young adults are either encouraging, accepting, or neutral when they talk about porn with their friends. Uh, let me bring it a little bit near. That the pornographic industry grosses a more than the NFL, NBA, and MLB combined. Not even that, that ABC, CBS, and NBC combined do not even come close to the revenue of the pornographic industry. For parents today, it's important for us to know that the average age of first exposure for pornography is 11 years old. And by 14, 94% of our kids will have seen porn for the first time. We live in a culture, y'all, where kissing another person is seen as more intimate than providing oral sex to them. We live in a culture that says sexual freedom means that whatever feels good to you should be followed without question. We live in a culture where young boys are taught at an early age that their manhood is connected to their sexual promiscuity or their ability to conquer and take advantage of women. And in today's time, even further, I believe the abuses that many women have experienced, the heartache has now turned into a negative response in the sense that women are now practicing polyamorous relationships in the same way that men had before. A lot of times there is not seen this um, sacredness, this, this even um, 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 the, the traditional sense of a relationship is something to simply be uh, dismissed and not embraced. But I said that it's in the church. One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis or are currently struggling. That's more than 50,000 U.S. church leaders. 43% of senior pastors and youth pastors will say that they have struggled with pornogra pornography in the past. And 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women say that they watch porn at least once a month. Church, we have a problem. And so today my goal is not simply to start at the place of what you should or shouldn't be doing, because those are simply symptoms. Today my goal and what I think scripture points us towards is the issue of freedom. The issue of freedom and where do we go looking for it. My only point today is this, that true freedom is not a pathway that you find on your own, but it is a person that you encounter and behold. That true freedom is not a path that you and I try to figure out on our own and try to do everything that we possibly can to kind of work harder or to heal ourselves, but that freedom is found in a person and that person is calling us to embrace him. The text begins in verse 12, with everything is permissible for me. I want you to notice that in those particular words, Paul or the scriptures will put those in parentheses, meaning that Paul is addressing a mindset that had been adopted by the Corinthian church. If you don't know anything about the book of Corinthians, then uh, let me first start to kind of lay the foundation that Corinth was a place where the people of God found themselves in a flourishing community. They find themselves in a place full of hustlers that everybody was on the grind for come up, but they found themselves also in a place of hypersexuality. It was not in any way foreign to be walking down the streets of Corinth and see prostitution taking place. It was not foreign to, to simply be going about your business and feel the constant lure and, uh, um, and invitations towards sexual immorality. That this church, as you read through the book, you see that this church, this group of believers, was incredibly gifted. However, there was some root issues that Paul had to address. Chapter 5, we see Paul correcting and even rebuking the church for uh, allowing um, a mother, a son, to be sleeping openly with his mother-in-law and the church turning a blind eye. We said this last year, y'all, that the church is messy. And the reality is that Paul has to open their eyes to what it means to be a follower of Jesus despite what they've always known to be true. 
And this is where we land ourselves in these opening words that Paul says, uh, everything is permissible to me, but not everything is beneficial. Uh, the problem here is that God, that, that Paul has to deal with a mindset amongst believers that would, that, would, that would think that the words, everything permissible to me, meant that I can do whatever I want to do. That there was this understanding that now as believers being free from the slavery and the bondage of the law meant that the God's holiness and his desires for his people uh, had, no, had, had no permission to invade into the innermost parts of the darkest parts of our lives. Um, this theological principle was not one they came up with, but was rather one that Paul himself had given to them. Paul is not here saying or wanting them to, to believe that uh, in the same way he talked about freedom, that everything is permissible. He didn't mean for them to understand that in an absolute sense. He didn't mean for them to pendulum swing the church from this legalistic view of what the Pharisees would have done, which is uh, put in place, thou should not do, or God is against this, but rather to bring it back to a place of, I want you to understand the beauty of Christian liberty, but in its proper context. Paul doesn't eradicate the initial principle of everything is lawful. He simply just says, there's more to the story. I think in today's time, we encounter as believers, especially in a city like Atlanta, a city known for its strip clubs, a city known for its sex trafficking, that we can uh, somehow um, begin to adopt the cultural perspectives of our sexuality and not God's perspective that we should have of our sexuality. I think that holiness is a term that we would affirm in church, that we would acknowledge in our lives, but it's not actually something that we think should influence the way that we live. God is restricted to being able to save our souls, but he's not allowed to actually exercise lordship in the areas that I enjoy the most. There's these things called pet sins, and these pet sins are the, are the things that we try to tuck away, that we try to act like they ain't as big a deal, that if we just come to them maybe once or twice a month or every other quarter that, ah, oh God, that this isn't really as big of a deal. Uh, Paul is saying, no, brothers and sisters, God has total rights over you. God is the one who has both purchased you and now he has something to say about the matter of how you use and see sex. Uh, the Christians here had gone from the far extreme of legalism, of rules to gain acceptance from God, to the other side of the pendulum, license, the ability to do anything we want that's pleasing to us. Um, I, I think we could probably summarize all of this in the statement that it is better to live for my pleasures than it is better than it is to live for God. And we may not actually say that to someone else. We actually may not, may, we actually probably won't even acknowledge that or confess that as something true within us at times, that we believe sometimes that God is withholding good from us and therefore we need to find good on our own. Uh, true satisfaction, y'all, is not found in creation, though. True satisfaction is found in our creator. And so Paul points to the reality that, yes, everything may be permissible to you. However, that doesn't mean that you can go and just do what you want. That the starting part of our understanding around uh, sex and what God would have for us shouldn't be at the place of our rights, but it should be at the place of what is helpful to ourselves and others. That's a different conversation. Because if we understand what Christ has done for us as the purchasing of our own individual rights, then we will live in light of that, loving ourselves more than we're called to love one another and to love God. We will live selfishly and not self-sacrificially for other people to know who God truly is and see him rightly for who he is by the way that we live our lives. Paul says that the solution, though, is not erecting some form of legalistic boundaries or principles. That's not the goal. The goal actually is to explain and expound upon the full meaning of what Paul intended when he taught that particular principle. Uh, what are my rights now? No. What would be helpful to my soul 
into loving other people should be where we begin every conversation as it relates to how we are to live our lives. Jesus says to us, or Paul is saying to us, that freedom unrestricted is unhelpful. Freedom unrestricted, y'all, is unhelpful. Why? It's problematic because what God forbids is never to be put aside. It's problematic because if freedom or liberty is seen as an absolute reality or qualification for us, uh, all that does is lead to bondage. And if it doesn't lead to bondage, it at least threatens or at least or at least threatening constraints to the competing freedoms of others. What do I mean by that? That if you exercise all of your freedoms, eventually you're going to run up against somebody who's exercising all of theirs. And that's going to bring about conflict. It's impossible for us to live this life and understand freedom by solely what we ourselves get to do when our actions always impact other people. You think that your sin that we're tucking away and hiding, hiding, um, hiding from other people is only harmful to yourself, but that's not true. It impacts every relationship. It impacts the way that you see the opposite sex. It impacts your own physical bodies. It impacts your, your participation in this community because you're so bogged down by the shame of the sin that you are holding on to that you feel as if I walk into the room of people who I don't believe are struggling in the same way I am, how could I possibly be loved? Freedom unrestricted is unhelpful, but freedom unrestrained is not freedom at all. Uh, not only is it unhelpful, but it actually is harmful. Um, if we look at our country and we look at the reality of the freedoms that we prop up and want everybody to experience, uh, the freedom of speech is heralded, but the exploitation of women in music contributing to rape culture, murder culture, and perversion is overlooked. The freedom to bear arms is exalted, but the fact that America leads the world in mass shootings is overlooked. In fact, in 2023 alone, there has been 123 mass shootings in, to date, and the reality of those very same tragedies was on our front door a few days ago. That the sexual freedom, this ability to define, this ability to explore and experience our own sexuality as we want, without fear or oppression of violence, is exalted, and yet the deconstruction of the nuclear family sex trafficking of women and children, STDs, STIs, and STVs up, upticks, growing tensions between the sexes and the identity crisis that we have because of our own genetic makeup are all overlooked. Freedom unrestrained is not freedom at all. It's just mutiny. It's an exchange of a master. It is the desire to say, I do not want to submit to something that would cause me to leave those things alone, but rather I want to create for myself someone who will condone and condone um, those very things. William Barclay, he echoes the words of Paul here in this quote. He says that Christian freedom does not mean being free to do as we like. It means being free to do as we ought. That this is the definition that Paul wants to ingrain into us and God's people, that freedom is found not simply by what we get to do, but what God enables us, empowers us to do. But he doesn't just stop there. He says that food is for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will do away with both of them. However, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. But God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Uh, true freedom is found in an identity given to us by God and not one determined by us. That it is something given to us. This logic here is that uh, in Paul's teaching about food, um, sacrifice to idols, what he says is that um, um, what they're trying to do is closely connect the freedom and the liberty of God making our bodies to enjoy and to be satisfied by food, that he is, they've taken it one step further to say God has made our bodies to solely be enjoy and satisfy ourselves through sex without any type of restraint. They believe that God was only concerned about the aspects of us that would, um, that would extend into eternity. He doesn't care about our bodies. He doesn't care about what we actually are doing in this life. He cares only about the things that we would say are not perishable. Paul is saying, no, 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 brothers and sisters. You don't understand that there is no category for the Christian where our bodies and the usage of them are inconsequential. 
That not only does God concern with our souls, but he's concerned with our whole self, mind, body, and soul. That if we are to think about the lordship of Christ, only being concerned with him saving us and not preserving us in the life to come, then we will look at God simply as a person who has given us a get-out-of-hell-free card and not a shepherd who wants us to experience him in a real and full way. The problem here and the problem that we have to fight against is this reality that it makes my sexual appetites the leading indicator of who I am as a human being. That if my appetites and what I desire is is within me, then that must be a sign that this is who God created me to be in the first place. It's his co-sign to us. And the reality is your sexual appetites are not who you are. In fact, if we look at Genesis 2, we'll find that before God gave us the gift of sex, he gave us humanity. He gave us the gift of purpose and dignity. He gave us all of these things before he told Adam, I got a boo for you, go to sleep. God, if God gave Adam the command and commission to say, I'm placing you in this garden and I don't want you to eat from any of the tree, you can eat from all of these trees except for the tree of life. And that means that Adam's body and our bodies were made to glorify God and not ourselves. It means that sex and sexual relationships are not the thing that is the most important reality of our lives. The issue here is not one with some mechs, uh, is the issue here though is not one with sex. It's one of submission. What or who gets the authority over our bodies? Is it God or is it me? So I think we first we've got to define sexual immorality because I don't want to assume that we all have the same working definition. So let me give it to y'all as this. Sexual immorality is the nature of sexual behavior, which is outside of God's expressed will. It is the immorality is the Greek word pornea, which we get porn. And, and, and here's the thing, y'all, that I think we've got to understand is that it is the devil that says it is the devil who holds out to us and tells us the lie that porn is the best that you can get from God. That that adulterous affair is the best that you can get from God. That, 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 that clicking that button in the middle of the night, that, that's the best that God has for you. And because that's the best, there's nothing else awaiting. God is the one that says he wants us to steer our eyes in the right direction to say, don't believe the counterfeit lie. That is not what the best that God has for you and I. That is simply a, 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 a it is a false Um, It is something that may feel good in the moment, but will never satisfy us in the long run. Y'all, anytime that God calls us away from something, he's always calling us to something better. And that's why repentance is not just letting go of something, but it's turning towards something. That if you don't replace it with God, then you'll find yourself replacing it with something else that it still does not satisfy. Paul is saying, no, 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 I don't want you to believe the lie that God's best can be found in the immorality or misuses of sex to serve yourself. No, I want you to see something better. I want you to see that ownership of your bodies, I want you to see the ownership of your bodies through the eyes of a husband to his wife. What do I mean by that? Uh, A lot of this language of possession is not simply the idea behind possessing someone as complete rights with all autonomy. That's not what God's talking about. That in a husband and wife relationship, possession means, yes, I belong to you, you belong to me. But the possession does not mean that my wife or the husband doesn't have autonomy. It does not mean that I can use their bodies for anything that I want them want to do with them or that when I want to use their bodies that they should submit to me without rejection. No, 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 that's not what that means. Any married person knows that rejection is a part of married life. <laughs> Your wife will tell you no. And I want to be real. Your wife will tell you no. Your husband might tell you no. That doesn't mean that they don't love you. All right. You tell it on yourself. (laughs) Hold up now. I don't want no fights after church. What it means, though, y'all, is that for 
My wife to belong to me means that I'm committed to sharing only the most intimate moments of my life with her. For my wife to, for me to belong to my wife means that um, my body doesn't belong to me. And so a no doesn't mean that I don't love you. However, no is not the same thing as not right now. And we have to understand that if we love someone and we're in a relationship with someone, that there's a way in which we're going to carry ourselves that, um, that, that doesn't in any way disrespect or dishonor the person that we say we're committed to. That's what Paul is wanting us to see through these eyes of, uh, no, 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 God's possession of you is really just a sign of your fidelity. It's really just him saying, no, I love you so much, and you said you love me, and so now we walk out this thing. It's about us uh, walking together in this fidelity, this, this singleness of affection, of heart, this, this concern of like, God, I want my love for you to be an expression. I want the way that I live my life to be an expression of my love for you. I get to show you uh, that I love you through these means. I've already got your love, so I'm not trying to earn it. It's just that I've tasted of how good your love is to me, and so I want to honor you in the way that I live my life. God will not simply do away with our bodies. Paul is saying, no, he's not going to do away with our bodies. In fact, there will be a day where he perfects our bodies, where our soul and our body are one again, but they're perfected. They're not flawed anymore, and they're with him. Paul is letting the Christians know right here, and he's letting you and I know that that the identity that we've been given for God, from God, that if we would just believe it, if we would just accept it, it's so much better than anything that we could determine for ourselves. The problem with us is that we want to do what's right in our own eyes. We think that our thoughts are somehow better than God's thoughts. And so when we're confronted with hard questions, we were confronted with things that really don't make sense, that the culture would say, that's unloving for you to have such a narrow view of marriage. That's unloving for you to have such a narrow view of what is and isn't acceptable in the kingdom of God based off of your sexual ethics. That it is our responsibility as Christians to say, you know what, it is not my job to fully understand all the ins and outs of God's holy laws. What it is, what separates us, is that we can know we have tasted the holiness of God. We have seen it for what it is. And anyone who has seen the holiness of God does not look sin at sin the same way any longer. We don't have a problem calling sin sin when we know that God is holy, when we believe that God is holy. And it's not us pointing fingers at other people as if they're beneath us. It is us looking at how wretched of a man we are. Of looking at how much sin God had to die for in order to save me. So it lets us to have conversations with people who don't believe the same things that we are with compassion and grace. Not anger. Why do I need to convince you that God is who he says he is? He can do that himself. I'm just going to make you aware of what God has said is his standards and what God has said about himself. And I allow you to fight with him, not with me. Let me keep going. We got to get out of here. Um, The last thing Paul says is that um, don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's bodies? So should I take Christ's body and make it part of a prostitute. He goes on with these two more, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know? And I want you to understand that when Paul asks the question, don't you know, it's not him asking a question because people are ignorant. It's him asking the question as a reminder to them that you've already been taught this, but you're not practicing it. Three don't you knows. The first one, don't you know that your bodies are part of Christ's bodies? Why would Paul, in addressing sexual immorality, talk about Christ's body? That's the question we got to ask ourselves. Why would he do that? Because I think that you and I, we, we won't dispute the reality that we belong to Christ's body. We just will dispute the reality that the way we use our bodies affect Christ's bodies. We got to start asking ourselves, when, 
what is our soul truly longing for? Uh, I found in my own life that when I feel the temptation, the urge to sin with my eyes or sin sexually even, that there's some underlying longings that I'm looking to feel outside of God. That the sin underneath the sin is the desire of being wanted, the desire of being cherished, the desire of being valued, the desire for companionship, the, the, the desire not to be lonely, the desire for respect, and the desire to be seen. Men don't usually cheat on their spouse simply for sex. Men cheat on their spouse because they're looking for something that they don't believe that God has actually provided for them outside of their spouse. They've believed the lie that, God, what you've given me isn't good enough to satisfy me, so I've got to look elsewhere. It's always, a, the issue is always one of worship. I want, it, I want to be wanted and she doesn't want me, so I look for someone who will. I want to be respected and she doesn't respect me, so I look for someone who will. I want to be listened to and she doesn't listen to me, so I look to someone who will, even if I have to pay for it. I don't want to be lonely and she doesn't pay me attention, so I'm going to find it for someone else. The reverse can be true as well, that women cheat for probably the very same reasons. He gave me more attention than my husband was. He was a better listener than my husband was. He supported my work and my efforts and my careers more than my husband did. The reality is, is that it's always something underneath the sin. And you and I as Christians, we, y'all, it is bigger than just performing an act. It's about who you are choosing to serve. Who you are choosing to trust, who you are choosing to believe, who you are choosing to behold. It's not as simple as asking the question, why did I do it? Oh, just because I was sleepy. Oh, because I was tired. Oh, because it just happened. Oh, because I just, I just, I, I failed today. All the excuses that we use, that we can somehow just slip into sin. No, y'all, that's a lie. We don't, spot, we don't slip into sin. We don't even fall into sin. We run towards sin. And just because you can't diagnose the point where you made a decision in your heart to say, I want this more than I want God, and even though it may have taken years for the evidences of that sin to actually come to fruition, <clears throat> doesn't mean you didn't make an actual choice. What does knowledge of our bodies belonging to Christ do? It means that... Um, there's no part of you that is unknown by God. It means that God was fully aware of your brokenness well before he died for you, well before he saved you, well before he committed to you unconditionally, he was aware. It means that you are never alone, that when you find yourself in that dark room where you think you are outside the sight and gaze of everybody, including God, God is with you. And that is not meant to simply bring fear, that is meant to bring comfort. Because that means that if God is with you in that moment, that he has the power instantaneously to change that moment in your life forever. That he, is the, he, that he has the awareness to know exactly what you need in order to be whole and healed. Paul is saying, no, like, to engage in sexuality or sexual immorality is to bring Christ with you in the act. But not only that, sex is not a casual activity but a spiritual connection. He uses the word prostitute because he's speaking directly to a culture who wants quick and convenient satisfaction. A prostitute, you can pay to get what you want. There ain't no money being spent to woo, to, um, to no gain being thrown out there. It's just simply a transaction. And I think the reason why we enjoy or think about porn the way that we think is because of how convenient it is to get access to. We can hide on our screen. We can go into that bathroom in the middle of the night and close and lock the door. We can be in our office and people think that we're working and yet we are literally in the office room watching pornographic materials. We can do all those things because we think that sex was meant to be instant and, 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 and that sex was really meant to, to not really cost us anything. 
Um, but God doesn't see things the way that we see things. Uh, John 4, Jesus at the, with the woman of well. This is how God looks at sex. He sees this woman, this Samaritan woman, and she says this to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have five husbands and, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. <clears throat> Paul says that when you lie down with a prostitute, you've actually made a covenant marital commitment with her <clears throat> or him. That sex is never a casual act in God's eyes. That the intended purpose of sex was to make a covenant with another person that signified a commitment that you would have for the rest of your life. It is to reflect the covenant commitment that God has with his people and that he has with himself. So if we view sex as just a casual act, what we are failing to realize is that in God's sight, our body count is probably an indicator of the number of husbands or wives that we have. <clears throat> sex is meant to unite two people permanently together in this world because it points to what God has put into place. But lastly, sexual immorality is not, uh, I, I've got to speak of this because I think that we elevate sex, sexual immorality above other sins in an unhealthy way. I think that we view sexual immorality as this greater and bigger sin that when people encounter it, 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 it brings a whole nother level of shame and disgust upon them than other sins like lying or things that we can kind of hide or dismiss. But the reality is, is that sexual immorality is not a greater sin, but it does have a greater, a greater cost attached to it. He says, flee sexual immorality. Um, every other sin a person commits outside the body, but the person who is sexually immoral sins against his own body. What is he saying? Don't play with it, don't play with it, don't play with it. <laughs> he says, don't play with something that's intended to burn you. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without his feet being scorched? Proverbs 6, 27 to 28. Sexual temptation, y'all, is you've been a Christian for a while and you've been in the church. You know that sexual temptation and sin has taken down some of the greatest giants of the faith. And I think the lie and the deception that we believe is that we're strong enough to fight it as opposed to flee it. Flee hanging out at your girlfriend's home in the middle of the night, thinking y'all are just watching Netflix with no chill. Flee entertaining that coworker who you know is flirting with you, but you dismiss it as just, oh, they're friendly. Flee watching those shows and movies that you know have explicit sexual content in them and depending upon your own self-control to click the forward button when it comes up. Flee using devices without any safeguards or protection because you haven't wrestled with sexual sin up until now and you think that you won't wrestle with it any time to come. Consider yourself, brothers and, Christ, uh, brothers and sisters, and I want to give this to my dating and engaged folks. This is not a law by any means. This is just, I think, wisdom that we can use based on the text. Uh, some of us got to admit that we're freaks. I I'm just being honest. Some of y'all are freakier than what you want to admit. And the reality is you go into a relationship not being honest with yourself and you engage in kissing your partner and then wonder why it keeps leading to heavy petting or everything but intercourse. The Bible says don't awaken love before it's time. The Bible tells us that, um, that the call is not simply to not do evil, but it's actually um, the higher standard is to avoid even the appearance of evil. Just because you think that you ain't doing nothing wrong doesn't mean the neighbors that live across the street that see you coming in and out at all hours of the night ain't thinking that you're digging into your girl. You got to be concerned more about the witness of Christ in your life. It can't just be about us. 
Think about the conversations you're going to have to have with your children. Think about those conversations around sex that you're going to have to talk to as Christians and probably admit some of the ways that you sexually fell with their mother. We can't be so nearsighted, y'all. That our brokenness doesn't just disappear because Christ saved our souls. We're still in this flesh. There's nothing good in it. But lastly, Paul reinforms them of the harmful effects of sexual sin has on their body. And I've already addressed this, but I want to give this this one statistic. 75% of wives of sex addicts could be diagnosed with PTSD. PTSD. Porn is not an innocent. Porn is not an innocent um, action. Your body responds to porn. And it's so evil that it confuses the actual genetic makeup of your mind to no longer function in a way to where you're able to respond appropriately to someone of the opposite sex. And marriage will not be a cure for your porn addiction. It won't. Sin, sexual sin harms your body in ways that other sins don't. I'm glad, though, that Paul doesn't stop there. 19, 19 and 20, he says, don't you know, the last one, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom, whom you have from God? That you are not your own, for you were bought at a price, so glorify God with your body. Why does Paul end it like that? (sighs) Brothers and sisters, I want to speak specifically towards those who may find themselves feeling stuck in their sexual sin. And I'm not talking about, man, I messed up. No, 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 I'm talking about uh, over and over and over again. You find yourself in the same situation. You feel as though you're losing the fight, not winning it. These verses right here, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is inside of you, means that God establishes his presence in people who are not perfect. However, his perfectness will be worked out in your life when he's done fixing what is broken. There's a reason why Philippians 1 says he will complete the work that he started in you. It's meant to bring hope and encouragement to God's people That where I find myself right now is not where I'm going to finish. Paul says this, that the promises of God are true. That his presence is a marker of his territory. That if you belong to him, then all of the promises that he's made to you can be taken to the bank. Don't believe that your worth in God's sight will be lessened because you found yourself doing something you never thought or imagined yourself to do. God doesn't see us as his people through the lenses of our behavior, but he sees us through the righteousness that has been provided for us in Christ. I think as a church, we've got to be reminded that even before this text, in the same chapter, Paul says this, that do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. God took all of your sin, past, present, and future, and he erased it as if it never existed. But not only that, he says you were sanctified. Meaning that he positions you in the place to be seen as righteous. Think about that. Righteous. Not just a little bit righteous. Not just partly, but completely righteous in God's sight. Because that's the standard by which every human being can have relationship with God. That you are to be holy as he himself is holy. The problem or the thing for us as Christians is that we simply admit On my best day, I can't be holy enough. On my best day, I can't earn righteousness for myself. 
And yet I look to the one who has lived a perfect life for me, that has lived the morally perfect life in a, in, and met every standard of God and now says, if you believe in me, you too can be righteous in God's sight. And not only that, he said, justified in the name of the Lord. Justified. No longer treated on the basis of our behavior. It's finished. It's been accomplished. You are his. And as great as methods are, covenant eyes is great, y'all. Other things in the world that we put in place that... Those are great things. But if we only think that those things are going to be the solution to our deep need, I think that we miss short of what God has to offer. David says, after having commissioned the murder of a woman's husband on battle, raping her, being having his sin find himself out, writes this psalm, Psalm 51, at the darkest point of his life, and he cries out to God and he says, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. And then I will teach the, I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. The first step for those of us who find ourselves in that place is confession. If we conceal it, it will destroy us. But if we confess it, it can liberate us. But not only that, it's calling out to God and say, restore something in me that has been lost. The joy of my salvation. The solution is one of affections, not behavior. The solution is us saying, God, I don't love you as much as I used to. I find my heart cold and callous towards you. It's not that I don't believe I don't belong to you, but I question whether or not you still love me. Restore this joy inside of me, in the inner parts of me, that would look upon my salvation as a gift and not a burden. As something that was purchased for me. That as we sing songs like the one we did, that we recognize that all of the chains have been broken. Restore not knowledge that that is true, but restore the reality of my affections, believing that to be true. And it's that joy of belonging to him that, that somehow begins to melt away the coldness of our hearts. It's that joy of knowing that in God, he is the one all satisfying. He is the one more that in his presence is the fullness of joy. He is the one in whom I have to come to and ask that he would give me something that I can't have on my, can't get for myself. And it's in that moment, y'all. It is in that moment where, Paul, where, where David recognizes that the worst mistakes that I've ever done in God's hands can be the primary tool to which God uses as a testimony to lead others to himself. Church, I don't think the world is looking for perfection. I think the world is looking for honesty. I think conversations about sex need to be normalized in the church because everybody else is talking about it except us. I think that for some of us, if we would stop trying to hide what we've done and don't just tell people when we come out of it, but invite people in it while we're going through it, that perhaps that coworker that we've been talking to about Jesus, if they knew the fact that I struggled with the same thing that they struggled to, struggle with, but yet I knew who to bring it to for healing. Perhaps that they would say, man, there's something different about your God. Perhaps there's actually power in the gospel when the church would admit we're just as broken as you, but by God's grace we've been saved, and now he journeys with us as we move towards healing. Perhaps our witness in the world would be more than simply words, but there would be teeth to it. Paul says, God, if you would just do this one thing, then I would tell the rebellious your ways, and the sinners will return to you. God's given some of us testimonies that we've kept our mouth shut about because we're, we're, shamed, we're ashamed of them. We're ashamed of what we've done, and we're ashamed to tell people in a room like this who are supposed to be ones who've experienced grace and mercy 
out of fear of judgment and rejection. God's call to you and I as a body is to say there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Just because you look around and see smiling faces, just because you look around and see people putting on IG the best of their life, doesn't mean that they're not going through the same thing that you are. And you don't have to wait till you get whole in order to help somebody else. Because there's always somebody a little bit further down the road than you are. That you can say, you know what, I ha- I'm, not, I'm not completely there yet, but this is how God has helped me along the way. David says, my prayer is that they would return to you. As I close, the three things that I mentioned today is that true freedom is not an opportunity for our self-indulgences, but it is meant to be an expression of our love for Jesus. That true freedom comes from an identity given to us by God and not one that we have determined for ourselves. And that true freedom is experienced when our experiences lead us to God. But that is the goal. That is the invitation that even as we um, prepare for communion today as a family, I want us to realize that as we take the elements, that's a serious thing. That that is a... um, That is a time where we are saying that we believe that Christ's body was broken for us and that his blood was spilt for us so that we can experience satisfaction in him. And let us not go into this time having not first paused for a moment and let God deal with us accordingly. You don't have to fear God when you belong to him. You can freely come to him. And know that when I bring the worst of me, his arms are open wide. That when I'm running to them, he's there standing and awaiting. And that if I bring confession, he tells me that my confession and repentance is simply the pathway to my healing. If you're in that place today, I want to invite you that as the elements are being passed, to simply listen to the song, but spend time talking to God. Spend time Asking God, Lord, what is something I've been holding on to and I've been too fearful to give to you? Would today be the day where you are set free? Would today be the day where you may not be completely perfected, but you can start the path of progress towards healing in that area of brokenness? And at the end, we will also make announcements. I know that sometimes subjects like this, they open up wounds. And so we want to be mindful as shepherds in this church to say, if that is you, uh, would you just come and and we'll be outside um, actually at the uh, ministry fair. If you see one of us either right after service or out there, pull us aside and say, man, I just want to, just need prayer. I need resources. I don't know where to go next. We've got those for y'all. We will send them out to the whole church in the email um, for those that want further um, assistance and further conversation. Um, But we are here to serve you all. Amen. Let me pray before we pass the elements. Father, we thank you that we can find true freedom only in you. Um, Father, you see the word says that where the Spirit, Holy Spirit is, that there is freedom. And I pray that that would not just simply be a, um, a matter of intelligence, Father, but would that be something that we believe and experience deep down in our hearts. Father, I pray against fear right now. I pray against the fear that the enemy may be putting in our minds. What will people think about me, Lord? What will I lose if I actually bring this into the light? Father, would you erase all of those things? Would you guard people's minds, um, um, guard people's minds right now to simply be able to hear your voice and to respond accordingly to your word? Father, I pray that you will give courage and boldness to say, I'm tired of playing with this sin. I'm tired of it owning me. Father, I want to want you more than anything and that that cry of faith would be met with such love and tenderness and comfort, not just from your spirit, God, but from your people. It was the boldness to invite people into the dark parts of our lives in knowing that there is not one who can cast a stone on another, Father. We all fall to our knees when we look up at your cross. It is only you, only you, Lord, was perfect, who met every standard. Father, let us embrace the freedom that we get through the gospel, that our sins 
are no more. That we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we've been justified through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Would that be the thing that we rest in this day? We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Strong. 